From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, welcome to the program. We're so happy to have you join us today on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Uh, Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you'd like to talk to Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America. I want to call today from Luxembourg. How about that, Father? Hey, good. <laughs> so if you're in Luxembourg and you'd like to talk to Father Brian Milady with a question about the Catholic faith, the number is 205 you can always send us an email, and the email folder is a little light, so we would appreciate some emails at openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com, and put Thursday or Father Brian in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate location. And um, I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is matt gubensky and michael mccall doubling up on the social media end of things so if you're watching us on youtube or facebook live you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program and our host as he is every thursday the aforementioned father brian Milady. how are you just fine thank you you know our holy father is heading to canada if he's not he'll be there next week for sure and uh, he'll be celebrating some liturgies at um, the is it a basilica? The Basilica of Saint Anne de Beaupre in I Quebec think City. So. Yes, I'm going to tell you something. So. That's one of the most spectacular places I've ever been in my life. And the story about the thought processes that went into the uh, construction of that beautiful uh, church or something else. And uh, Saint Anne played a unique role in salvation history, along with her husband Saint Joachim. Yes, uh, I wanted to talk about them especially St. Anne today, because next week, I believe it is, we'll be celebrating their feast. And the story we have from St. Anne, about St. Anne and St. Joachim, and their marriage and the difficulties they had conceiving come from an apocryphal gospel. So they're not accepted as inspired by the Holy Spirit in the same way that the four gospels are. But in the proto Evangelium or the Gospel of James, there are certain things that Christian tradition, especially the Eastern Church, which was taken over by the Latin Church eventually, have uh, had a great deal of influence. And one of them is the actual um, relationship of Joachim and Anne. Neither one of them could conceive and needless to say, this was a strain on their own personal life and also on their marriage because they desperately wanted a child. And so Joachim went outside the city to pray and stayed in the city. And the 
Gospel of James tells us that the angel Gabriel appeared to both and told them they would conceive a child. Now, they had promised, should they conceive a child, to dedicate the child to our Lord. So they were both thrilled they were going to conceive. They had this revelation. And they ran to meet each other. And they met each other at the city gate. And this scene, of the, and they embrace. And this scene is the only icon that we have of a married couple embracing each other. Now, Mary and Joseph are always portrayed together, but not embracing and the reason is a theological one, because our Lord, as you know, was not conceived by human seed. So the virgin birth would be against the idea of them embracing each other, Mary and Joseph. But Mary, following the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, was conceived by human seed, but human seed of two people who were just and chaste and pious, and then also in the gospel, we are told that Anne uh, tried to educate Mary. There are lots of beautiful paintings, especially with the Renaissance, of Anne reading to Mary. And the tradition tells us that she helped her understand the scripture. Although, as you know, they were afraid that Mary would miss her parents when they dedicated her in the temple. Because she was dedicated to the temple with the temple virgins. And so at the age of three, I believe it was, <laughs> they thought it was okay. So they brought her to the temple, and this is also, in James, the origin of the uh, idea of Mary being presented in the temple, which is a feast that we celebrate today. And the description of Mary going there is very interesting because she, it says she jumped up the steps the high priest received her. She didn't even look back at her parents. And she danced in the temple, and all Israel loved her. Now, the Feast of St. Anne is a very important one, especially, as you mentioned, Canada, and in places influenced by French Canada. There are lots and lots and lots of novenas to St. Anne. And people that live in New England, especially, or were influenced by people who live in New England. And we have one in San Francisco at our parish there, and I preached it at one year. And it was very interesting because my mother had had a major stroke, and she couldn't use, among other things, her right hand. She just held it. She couldn't even make a fist with it, all right? So she was getting depressed, and needless to say, about her inability to walk perfectly or talk perfectly or use her hand at all. And during this novena, I said, well, you know, St. Anne, you're Mary's mother. You're Jesus' grandmother. Do you think you could do a favor for me? Because my mother, she's having trouble. All right, that was it. The next week, I called my parents and my mother, I said to my mother, how are you doing anyway? She says, the strangest things happened to me. I said, what? And she said, well, I woke up in the middle of the night with this horrible pain in my arm, my right arm. And for the first time, I could make a fist with my fingers since I had the strokes. So of course, I said, it was St. Anne. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure my mother totally agreed with me. But the point is that 
um, the devotion to St. Anna's, the patroness of grandmothers, and also as an intimate in the household of Christ, uh, many early sources claim that she went to Egypt, for instance, with the, you know, flooded Egypt with them, and there are all kinds of interesting stories about it all, and they're not just based on private revelations today. I mean, they're traditions that were abroad in the Christian church at the time. So as we're preparing for the Feast of St. Anne, let us, first of all, revere the sacrament of marriage, and especially remember that sexuality is good. There's nothing evil about it at all. It's we who make it evil when we use it in a manipulative, egotistical fashion. Joke and Anne did not do that. And that's why this icon is a very beautiful one of them embracing each other. And because of the fact that Christ really willed to come as an ordinary human being, he did choose to be born in a family. And of course, we don't have a special relationship with Joseph and Mary, but he must have had a similar special relationship with his grandparents. So as we get ready to celebrate the Feast of St. Anne, let us ask her intercession that our families too may be filled with the love and the truth, especially the Word of God, which motivated Mary's and by implication our Lord's. The number to be on the program is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still like to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Join a deeper conversation about the most consequential issues facing Catholics today on EWTN News In-Depth with Monsi Alvarado. Uh, and you can even get EWTN News In-Depth delivered straight to your email inbox with details on each week's show. Simply go to EWTN.com slash In-Depth and sign up today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still three lines open for you at 
288-3986. First up today is Tim in the great state of Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Tim, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father Brian. Um, I have a question of, uh, I have a brother-in-law who who says he's Catholic, but then he talks about, he doesn't go to church, and he talks about uh, um, being uh present in the moment and reading the scriptures with a higher level of consciousness and and also so that he can act and not react and oh it just it 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 does it sounds like um gobbledygook to me i was just wondering how to approach that as you well as you know there are many people today who are baptized catholic or nominally catholic but they don't accept everything the church teaches, we call these people cafeteria Catholics. You know, they pick and choose. And also they're sometimes highly influenced also by, uh, you know, more fundamentalist or Bible church uh, teachings. Um, Calvary Chapel is an excellent example of that. Now, I don't know if your, your person you're talking about is one of those people, but it sounds like it to me. And there's nothing wrong with having a deeper understanding of the scriptures, but it has to primarily come to us through grace, and grace, of course, comes to us through the sacraments. So you really need to have someone who at least had enough, I don't know what word to use, exact depth, maybe, to understand that if they claim they're Catholic and they claim they have a deeper knowledge of the scripture, that should lead them to go to Mass, because the Mass is the summit of what scripture's trying to explain to us, and it's also the word of God made present. So I would tend to say that um, he's probably a cafeteria Catholic. Thanks, Tim. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Pat, and she is calling from one of the hidden treasures of the United States, Fairhope, Alabama. She's listening on Archangel Radio. Pat, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you. Father, uh, my granddaughter and her husband want to have a baby, and they've been trying and I was in the gift shop today looking for a prayer. I thought St. Anne was who we pray to for uh, pregnancy. And I couldn't find a prayer or a novena or anything of St. Anne. Is is there another saint, or what is the prayer they should be saying, or novena? We should... Well, of course, you can always pray to Our Lady or to St. Joseph. But if you have a computer, uh, you can just access St. Anne. And there's uh, actual websites concerning the devotion to St. Anne. And uh, they have on them, well, uh, I didn't have a chance to read this today, and I'm not sure I can get it up right away. But they have uh, all the devotions and prayers, medals, uh, all kinds of things like that. And one thing I found very interesting I didn't know about was the litany to St. Anne. So some, some examples of the petitions in the Litany of St. Anne, are Mother of the Virgin Mary, Spouse of St. Joachim, Ark of Noah, interesting, Root of Jesse, Fruitful Vine, Joy of the Angels, Hope of the Patriarchs, Vessel Full of Grace, Mirror of Obedience, Mirror of Patience, 
mirror of devotion, support of the church, refuge of sinners, mother of virgins, help of Christians, gate of salvation, guide of pilgrims, consolatrix of the afflicted, health of the sick, health of all, help of all those who invoke you. And then there are some very beautiful prayers for sin and to bless your family. So I would suggest that you just go up online and type in St. Anne and see if you can find those things. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Uh, next is Kathy in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Kathy, you are on with Father Brian Malady. Hi, thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, the other morning at Mass, uh, accidentally, I think, the cruet that held the wine was left on the altar. He only had one server, so... But anyway, but when Father consecrated the wine in the chalice, does that mean the wine in the cruet was also consecrated? Uh, no. The wine, uh, normally the priest makes an intention to consecrate, consecrate only uh, the wine in the chalice. And when we were young priests, we were taught that we should make the intention to consecrate only the elements, that's to say the bread and the wine, that are on, in some sense, the corporal, even if it's touching it. The corporal, remember, is that cloth that you put out underneath the chalice, its purpose is, first of all, to establish the sacred space of the sacrifice, much like the tent of meeting in Moses in the desert or the parameters of the temple in Jerusalem, and also to catch any of the consecrated particles of the host or the consecrated precious blood. So normally most priests only intend to consecrate what's on the corporal. So it doesn't affect anything else that's around it, and, and especially the um, uh, wine in the cruet. The wine in the cruet is only available for you know putting in the chalice to consecrate it, or if you want a more sophisticated um, purification of the chalices, and that's true in both of the new rite and the old rite, you can do it twice, and you can put wine in with water, because in the old times, that's what they used to do. And I, I usually put my fingers also, the classic pose, usually with the two fingers of each hand that touched the precious blood, the host, over the top of the chalice, and you purify them in the sense of having the water, or the water and the wine, poured over them also. But they're not consecrated, no. Does that help, Kathy? That's fine. Thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate the call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop is Crofton, Maryland. Susan is in Maryland listening on the EWTN app. Susan, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Brian. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be on with you. I have a question about our our Jewish brothers and sisters who died in the Holocaust and the idea of sainthood. It seems, uh, it seems as if they were martyred for their religion and that they 
certainly, um, you know, that's a well-known fact. Um, but um, I, I just would like Father's thoughts on that. Well, the Jews that were killed in the Holocaust, most of them were martyred for Judaism. And that meant a denial of Jesus Christ. So I wouldn't say they're the same as Christian martyrs by any stretch of the imagination. However, it's true that they died for their religion. And so, um, in, in some sense, they could be placed under salvation and go to heaven. But it wouldn't be as a um, Catholic saint. Um, and certainly they're not worthy of hell. Uh, as, and they've done a wonderfully, um, uh, what would you say, selfless act. And so for that reason, I think they could go to heaven, but they're not the same as Catholic martyrs. Because the truth they died for was a very limited truth, and part of it was denying the fullness of truth. However, their sacrifice is recognized as a fittingly friendly act to God, and it certainly wasn't something evil. So I would say whatever the state of their soul was before they were killed is what determines uh, their destiny. God bless you, Susan. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Claire is in the great state of Colorado listening on Catholic Radio Network. Claire, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Thank you. Uh, thank you to all of you. My question is that um, I found some material, uh, and this is a difficult question, uh, it, it, there is a group that is a, a Catholic family um, association, and uh, there is a lawyer, theologian, and a and, um, very, very educated person um, that has a program in EWTM, which um, has some materials on the webpage that talks about uh, how to talk to uh, parents uh, about the transgender uh, situation that is uh, being taught in the public schools and uh, to bring this to, to the families, to the parents, to tell them what is going on um, because it's, it's really becoming an epidemic that uh, the children even from 11 years old are, there, are already confused about their gender identity and in Europe they have already uh, uh, put kind of like a break to, to what has gone really bad on to say that the teenagers uh, go through surgeries to change their... their uh, yes, their, I'm familiar uh, with all that. So yeah. what's the question? So what's the best way, Father, for, uh, to, to approach adults about the things that their children are being indoctrinated with? Oh, I see. So the issue is how you deal with the fact that you're sending your children to a public school where they're being taught such horrible things. Uh, well, um, first of all, if it were my kids, they wouldn't be at that school anymore. Uh, it, 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 it's just too compromising on little children to be presented with the fact that when the, what, when they're three now, they could do sex reassignment things. I, I mean, and the thing is, 
you're supposed to, uh, you, you call out your identity based on what you identify with that day. So today I might be a man, tomorrow I might be a woman, the next day I might be a man. The whole thing is just crazy. So um, if, uh, barring the ability to go to another school or do homeschooling, I would be sure that I tried to dilute as much as possible the evil that was being taught. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Chuck in Livonia, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Chuck, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call. I've been invited to attend the wedding of uh, a co-worker that I've known for 30 years. Um, The bride has uh, been baptized and has had their first Holy Communion Catholic Church, but the person that's presiding over their marriage will be someone who acquired their credentials online and automatically became uh, valid to perform a wedding in like 38 states. And I'm just wondering if it would be um, wrong for me to attend such a wedding, since I think... (laughs) I really don't uh, understand why someone would get married like that, but in any case. Well, marriages are, you know, priest's most hated task. You know, I used to say that in the seminary, and, oh, they'd have a heart attack. How There's so beautiful weddings and stuff. I said, oh, yeah, you haven't met Bridezilla yet, obviously. Um, And even more than that, the mother of the bride and the mother of the groom, they're the key people. And many people don't get married for any religious motive. I mean, it's because they like the pretty setting. Or, I don't know, maybe somebody knows this guy and they think it'd be fun to do with him. Or maybe they just want to do something unconventional. I mean, I think I'd question whether a person who got their marriage certificate online even no matter what religion I was, really had the ability to, to witness to it. Um, I, if it were me, now I wouldn't attend that wedding myself. Of course, I can't. I wouldn't attend a period as a priest, but even as a lay person, I uh, don't quite understand what's going on, and uh, I don't agree with it. And so, for me to go stand there means no. It makes no sense. Um, now, uh, there is a question. Some people felt years ago, and this is true of all weddings, where the spouses are doing something really weird and the parents don't agree or the relatives or the friends, that you might make a compromise and go to the reception. But other moralists say, no, that's, that's too far, too. So I, I really don't know what to advise you. Just remember, if you go and stand there, you're basically concurring with what's going on because uh, actions give consent, and silent actions give consent. So uh, I just don't think generally it's a good idea. I'm not saying there are no exceptions, but this person doesn't sound that close to you for you to make it such an exception. 
but of course I'm not used, so I really don't know. But uh, it's uh, it just passes belief to me what people do for weddings. Is that helpful for you, Chuck? Sure, I appreciate the answer. All right, thanks so much for the question. We appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. All this talk about St. Anne, we have Anne on the phone with us from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, listening on Holy Family Radio. Anne, you're on with Father Brian. Hi there. I had a question about the beginning of Mass when we have the Lord have mercy and we have the um, confidium, we don't, not all church services have the confidium. Can you explain? Uh, well, first of all, I, I know you don't know much about Latin, but it's confidior, okay, with an R at the end, um, which means I confess in Latin, basically. Because in the new rite, there's an option. There are three options you can choose for doing the penitential rite, uh, which used to be called the prayers of the foot of the altar. Now, in the old Mass, it's always the same. But in the Mass approved in the Missal of 1969, there were three options given, only one of which had the confidi or, or I confess as a part of it. So that's the reason. They've chosen another option. So it's probably there, and you just didn't recognize it, Anne. Does that make sense? No, I like it. Yeah. I like it. I, I think it has more powerful, I think, more meaning. I think we say the other so fast, and I, I think it's yeah, I agree. Good... I, I agree with you about that. Um, it's a penance right A that has the confidier. Um, occasionally I use the other, but there has to be a big reason for it, because I do like, as you say, the confidier. It's, for one thing, it's traditional, and for another thing, it's very beautiful, even though they altered it a bit and left out some of the angels. They just say angels and saints, whereas we used to say St. Michael, St. John the Baptist, Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul. We used to name some of the saints to whom we confessed. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Robin writes in, could you explain what sacred tradition is and why the real presence is a necessary tradition? Okay. Um, There are two sources of divine revelation, which is the Word of God. There's the Word of God as spoken and the Word of God as written. The word of God as spoken came first because, of course, the apostles preached. In the word of God as spoken, a person is trying to form someone's conscience in what the truth is, obviously using oral words. But for various reasons, one of which is that it's hard, it's easy to misinterpret those, and also the fact that... Um, People wanted to preserve the teachings of the apostles. God inspired certain gospel writers, and this includes the epistles of St. Paul, etc., to also write what they thought down. This has pride of place 
It's called Holy Scripture, and it's the Word of God as written. Both testify to the real presence of the Eucharist. The Scriptures do this in John chapter 6 especially, and in certain the language is used by Christ, you know, when he says, this is my body which is offered up to you, well, the offering up there is a sacrificial action. It's the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And uh, so the word of God as written has this message. And also, from time of memorial, saying, believe we can go back all the way to the um, apostles' time, but the first real expression of the Eucharist as a ritual is in Jarstin Martyr, but that's almost the first century. So it's been constantly taught that there it's not just a meal, that it's a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice which is offered for the living and the dead. And since it's a sacrifice, it also involves the intimate change of the bread and wine into the body and blood of our Lord. Now, the explanations of how that can occur without it A, being symbolic and B, being cannibalistic, which are, of course, opposites to each other, took many centuries to evolve. The fact did not. But the term for this is transubstantiation, and it was first used in sacred tradition. Obviously, you won't find it in the scripture but it was first used in sacred tradition in the Fourth Lateran Council. I mean, people had used it before, but it was never used authoritatively to form our faith. So the Fourth Lateran Council stated that this was the proper explanation of the Eucharist. And what it was trying to do was steer a middle ground between saying the Eucharist is just a symbol and that we actually bite into Jesus' flesh in a cannibalistic sense both of which we're accused of doing. We, we don't believe it either. And the explanation of transubstantiation was a philosophical one that allowed a person to say, it looks like bread, its properties are bread, it looks like wine, its properties are wine, but its reality is truly the body and blood of Christ as he now exists in heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Next up is Marie in the great state of North Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130, a first-time caller. Marie, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Brian. Thank you very much. So my question has to do with the personal intention during Mass. Um, a homilist on EWTN mentioned that there were times that we should be doing that. I have never heard of this. Um, one of them was the collect. Father, can you help me with the other local times when we should be remembering our personal intentions during Mass? Thank you. Oh, personal intentions. All right. I finally understood what you were saying. Well, actually, the whole thing is your personal intention um, because... What you're doing at the offertory is offering yourself together with the gifts. And then in the epiclesis where Christ descends from heaven, or better to say, takes the altar up into heaven to the perfect sacrifice, you're a part of that. And you have to talk about your personal needs. 
and that sort of thing. When Vatican II talked about this famous act of participation, they didn't mean that every person had to sing every hymn when they couldn't sing. What they meant was that there's such a thing in a sacrifice called an oblation, an offering, and that you are your own oblation in this sacrifice. And in order to realize what's going on, you have to be able to see yourself that way and to express yourself that way. So um, the whole idea of our personal participation is not found on exterior things, though those may be important. I'm not saying they're not important. But they're founded more on an interior attitude of giving yourself wholly to God and then receiving back as a response uh, himself. Does that help, Marie? Yes, it did. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next stop, Jasper, Indiana. That's the home of Tri-State Catholic Radio. That's where Mark is listening today. Mark, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Yes, can you hear me okay, Father? Yes. Okay. I'm a physically disabled man. Uh, I've been have a cerebral palsy. I've had it since birth. And... um I'm, in certain ways, I'm considered severely, uh, severely medically disabled. Um, I was curious who the patron saint, the patron saint of the disabled was, who I could pray to about for my hardship. Oh gosh, <laughs> I think there's lots of them. It depends upon which hardship you have, um, and I don't know the particular one for, you know, cerebral palsy, but. Uh, there are plenty of saints, you know, who suffered greatly for their own illnesses. And because of that, they're able to um, help people to deal with theirs. So uh, I would say that the best thing to do is to look up, um, you know, whatever your disease you're suffering from. I know, for example... St. Dismas, I believe, is the patron saint of cancer sufferer. Not Dismas. Um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Peregrine. Um, Peregrine, yeah. And then there's St. Dymphna, who has to do with another illness. And, you know, there are lots and lots of them. So According I, I to, our, to our old friend Wikipedia, it but, is St. Margaret of Castello. Oh, well, of course, Margaret of Castello. Uh, you know, Margaret Costello was a Dominican, and she was born, let's see, deaf and blind, I believe. And her and ugly, and very ugly, by the way. Uh, must have been blind, not deaf. And so uh, she was, her parents were appalled by her appearance, because she was a dwarf and ugly. And so they bricked her up in this room, and don't, didn't allow anybody to have access to her. But it was right next to the chapel, so I guess she could hear. So she listened to mass constantly through a window into this chapel. And she actually taught herself the mass and all that business. Well, at one point along the line, her parents took her off to this other town because they said there was a saint there that cured physical suffering. So unfortunately, Margaret was not cured. 
and her parents were sick of this ugly dwarf being around them, so they just abandoned her in the middle of this town. She was blind. She didn't know anybody in the gutter, and she was a young, uh, I think she was very young, like 10 or 12 or 13. Well, eventually, uh, the family sort of adopted her, and she then joined a convent, only the nuns didn't like her because she rivaled them in holiness, and they didn't like this, again, ugly dwarf rivaling them in holiness, so they kicked her out, and she was eventually joined up with the Dominican Third Order. And she wore a kind of a habit, but she lived at home, and she used to especially do prison ministry. And she'd go to the jail, and these convicts, hardened convicts, you know, would be so struck by the fact it was this poor thing not gifted by nature with much. And in all she did was praise God. She was happy. She was cheerful. She never complained about her illnesses. So they'd all convert to Catholicism, back to religion because of it. So that's one example. But there, there are lots and lots and lots of saints with about the different illnesses. How's that, Mark? Hey, that helps out. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. You're very Surely. welcome. Thanks so much Surely. for the phone call today. Uh, yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, be sure to check out The Word on Fire Sunday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Bishop Robert Bishop rather Robert Barron. Uh, who will be heading off here to be uh, installed in his new diocese next week, uh, illustrates the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Catholic faith. That's Word on Fire, Sunday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Um, we have an email from Tom, and he says, I've heard the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does this mean? It means that... When our Lord chose, following the will of the Father, the Word of God, to take flesh and to die on the cross, that he demonstrated the great dignity which the Lord of Scripture has by giving his life for others. And in this, he saves us from original sin and he also adds to the glory of God because we see in him, uh, or as the Christmas preface says, in him we see our God made visible and so are caught up in love of the God we cannot see. And we experience a greater mercy and therefore there's no more wonderful sign that we could have of the love of God or external manifestation of his glory than the fact that his son chose to die on the cross for us. Uh, next stop for us is Union, Maine. Lawrence is a first-time caller in the great state of Maine, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lawrence, you're on with Father Brian. Hello, Father, and thanks for taking my call. Um, my, my question is uh, maybe trivial, but I grew up, I'm old, I'm 67. I grew up with the Our Father being recited at Mass always. And now quite, in my parish, the music lady likes to sing it. And uh, I asked the father about, the priest about, you know, if there's supposed to be one way or the other. And 
He said, no, it doesn't make a difference. But I had thought at one time that I heard that the Lord's Prayer is supposed to be recited. Well, uh, in the old Mass, in high Mass, it was sung by the priest alone. It was never sung by the congregation. But it was sung by the priest alone. In a low Mass, it was recited in a rather low tone, uh, sometimes inaudibly. Depends on when you uh, hit the uh, extraordinary form. Because up until 1960 or something, it was almost all of it was said inaudibly. But then they gave a permission, and this is part of the liturgical renewal at the time, to encourage people to have a dialogue mass. It started in Europe and it came to this country. It started in the 50s, I think, in Europe. And it eventually came to this country. But uh, it, the traditional distinction was in a high mass, it's sung by the priest alone. And in a low mass, the priest um, merely recites it. And what he does is, he, he, whether he sings it or says it, the priest used to end with, Nenos in ducas in tentationem, lead us not into temptation. And then the congregation would end either singing or saying the Lord's Prayer with said libera no samalo, but deliver us from evil. So there is no weight given to one is better than the other. Uh, obviously, it's more solemn to sing it. Thanks, Lawrence. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we might be able to squeeze you in at 833-288-3986. Bill is in Moorhead, Minnesota, and he is watching us today, and he would like to know uh, if you could please describe and explain your habit, and he wants to know if you wear a rosary around your waist. Okay, well... The origin of the Dominican habit is interesting. Of course, the tunic is part of what everybody always wore. But the scapular originally was an apron the monks wore to cover their tunic. And in the Middle Ages, it took on the character of devotion also to Our Lady. But if you think about it, you cover yourself with the two testaments. So that's scripture. And you also cover yourself with the two great commandments to love God and love your neighbor. In our case, we did not originally wear a scapular, but in a vision to Blessed Reginald of Orléans, who was dying, Mary showed him the scapular, and she asked that it be worn in her honor. The cowl part originally was attached to the scapular, but some people, about 100 or 200 years after the order was founded, felt it didn't look right. <laughs> <laughs> so what they did was, the, the cowl, you see, is important, symbolically, because it was the dress of children and when monasticism was founded. So it represents being a child of God. But the extension of it with this little cape, that was a kind of French invention, because it looked, had more finesse. Yes, we do wear a habit rosary, but not everybody used to wear it around their waist. It was a, some provinces did, some provinces didn't, and some provinces added things, like the Polish province, because they'd had so many martyrs, they used to wear a white, a, a red cincture. And then in the Holy Rosary province, they didn't wear that rosary around their waist. They wore a little small, small one around their neck. 
And uh, then, of course, the habit is white because unbleached wool was the cheapest. And so it represented poverty. And then, of course, it was added, they added the black cape. And that was supposed to show that even though outwardly you're kind of in mourning, inwardly you're in joy. And the black cape is actually the fullness of the habit. And it's actually the most distinctive part of the Dominican habit because <clears throat> well, I was just recently with some Norbertines and I have to keep reminding people that I'm not a Norbertine. <laughs> they're similar, uh, though. They are similar to the they're, eye. They're very similar, yes, except they don't wear a rosary. They wear a sash. They wear it around the scapular. They have these little buttons in this thing. And then in the present Norbertine habit, they have this tiny little cowl in the back. But that was it was originally my, the size of my habit because the cowl was imposed on them by Joseph II, the Emperor of Austria, because he didn't like contemplative life. Everything had to be useful to the state, including religious orders. <laughs> so they reduced the habit to make it look more, well, I guess they thought it looked more regal or something. Um, so um, its, it's, its origins are very interesting, but it primarily comes from the Fathers of the Desert, and it was the apron and the cowl that are its essential parts, really. Which yeah. is the scapular now, yes. Every habit has its story, I've come to learn. Right, That's exactly. for sure. They're exactly. not just uh, arbitrarily chosen, but they're, there's meaning behind each portion of it. And it's always good to visit those topics every now and then. We are flat out of time in this hour. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer and social media maven today, Mr. Michael McCall, and our call screener, Mr. Matt Kubensky, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin, God bless.